Hey everyone, it's Father Tony, and we're going to do some talk gnosis after dark. Hello, Jonathan, how are you? Good, how are you, Father Father? I'm very good, thank you. Um, so we had an interesting uh, short conversation earlier for our video show with Bradley Rice, uh, f who is a uh, student at the, a PhD candidate at the uh, McGill University up there in, uh, in your neck of the woods. So uh, hello, Bradley, how are you? Hello, hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back uh, after after our five minute break. Yeah, <laughs> so, so nice to have you here. Um, that is a good sign that he didn't shut off, shut off his computer in yeah. way. So yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah, believe you know. Jobs. I thought about just yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so we talked a little bit about um, a guy by the name of Natovich who wrote an interesting uh, uh, book, uh, a little uh, apocrypha, Christian apocrypha called "The Life of Saint Isa." Uh, so can you recap that again for us, so that uh, so for the podcast listeners? Yeah. So the life of Saint Isa is a text that you know Natovich uh, you know claims to have discovered in the Hemis Monastery in Ladakh in 1887, uh, and it has Jesus you know spend a number of years in uh, among you know Hindus where he's learning the Vedas, uh, and among you know uh, Buddhists where he's learning Pali and learning their scriptures, and then makes his way back, uh, you know, effectively preaching to Zoroastrians the Buddhist message, and you know, eventually ends up back in Palestine. So it's about you know seven to seventeen or eighteen years of these you know lost years of Jesus, mm -hmm. and uh, and he made it all up. He did. He made all of it up, <laughs> <laughs> including the tale of the, the the discovery of the manuscript as well. Um, you know, we know that he was you know probably at the monastery in the region. Uh, you know, and as the story goes, you know, we we talked about this. You know, he wasn't a broken leg, but rather a toothache <laughs> that he seems mm -hmm. to have had in the area that ultimately led him to uh, be brought into the monastery. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go back and watch that video if you haven't already. It was a very interesting conversation. But um, what I'd like to talk about is a little bit more about um, ab about why he wrote it and why people write these uh, kind of modern uh, forgeries, quote unquote, to begin with. I think that there's a very interesting kind of theory that you have about um, why these things are being written. So w this particular one, uh, you mentioned in the video uh, part of it that he, w he probably wrote it in part to kind of um, Help uh, help the Jews of the region who were being persecuted. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. So, what about apocrypha in general? Uh, modern forgeries, quote unquote. Uh, why do you think that people take this well-known story of Jesus and kind of completely make something strange up about it? Well, I think it's you know one of those cases where you know really they're trying to make Jesus relevant to the present. Uh, you know, in the paper I gave, I you know talk a lot about remythologizing Christian origins, and you know, basically retelling the story of Jesus in ways that make him meaningful for the present. You know, and in the case of you know these sort of so-called New Age spiritualities that integrate a lot of Eastern teachings, by have Jesus effectively go there, it's a way of you know making him relevant. You know, he, you know he, Jesus now becomes the bearer of these Eastern spiritualities that already have such appeal in, for these groups. Mm -hmm. And of course, these these groups that are popping up around the time of uh, Natovich is the you know the Theosophical Society mm -hmm. and Helena Blavatsky, who um, was a, was a bit of a forger herself. That's right. That's right. Yeah, she forged the so-called Book of Zan, which uh, you know was supposedly written in an unknown language, as far as I recall, called Sensar. Uh, it's one of those languages nobody knows of. So it's you know it's a book nobody can find in a language that nobody knows, and it's the, supposed to be the basis of her entire theosophical system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a long and interesting history of that. Um, you know, not to uh, not to cast any aspersions, but the the uh, foundation story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints sounds awfully familiar. 
mm -hmm. uh, along these lines with um, you know the, the the peep stones and the, the shoe stones and the hat and all that stuff. Uh, well, and it's interesting, you know, they also have Jesus travel to North America, yep. you know, in the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. So Jesus becomes quite the traveler. <laughs> you know, we, when you can just kind of teleport by snapping your fingers, why not? Yeah, right. there's, there's lots of neat places to look at. Mm -hmm. He's like, I should see the Grand Canyon before I go. Yeah, uh, yeah so I, I think that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting way of looking at these things, that they're, the, they're not being written in order necessarily. Uh, certainly there's some sensationalism to it, but mm -hmm. there's also, you know, good... Um, cultural reasons to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to make up stories about Jesus. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they're also uh, thinking of Jesus the Traveler, too. You know, there's another tale where, you know, Jesus is said to be in England, uh, you know, as a young man, as a, well, as rather as a boy with Joseph of Arimathea. You know, that's a legend that emerges, I think, probably in right. the 19th century based off William Blake. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's another legend where he goes to Japan, and, and I forget the details, but I believe he carries back uh, an ear and a lock of hair. Um, of, I forget the whole story, but it's, it's, it's an odd tale. It was featured in Smithsonian Magazine uh, you know, some years ago. Yeah, I wonder which uh, souvenir shop he got those at. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So um, the, uh, let's talk a little bit ab more about the myth of Jesus in India specifically. So there are a lot of other people who are talking about this this idea in uh, in and about that time period and, and afterwards. Who are some other people who are promoting this mythology? Yeah, so for example, toward the end of the 19th century, you have uh, Louis Jacoliot. Uh, you know, he, for him, you know, ancient India was the source of, you know, the highest morality and spirituality. So in you know, his reasoning, if Jesus had preached the same, he surely must have gone there. Uh, you know, and, and in the video, we talk a little bit about Francois Lawanan, uh, a Catholic missionary who worked in Pondicherry, I believe it was. Um, you know, and again, for him, it's, you know, India is kind of the wellspring of all culture and spirituality and morality. Uh, and so, you know, either Jesus had gone there or he had somehow heard something along the caravan routes. Um, you know, also during this period, I'm thinking you have, uh, you know, the prioritization of Sanskrit, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Indo-European studies. You know, Sanskrit was thought to come closest to Proto-Indo-European. Um, so you have something in the air, you know, kind of the idea that, you know, wisdom, all wisdom comes from India was somehow kind of in the air at that time. Um, and so it almost seemed inevitable, I think, that Jesus himself is thought to have gone there. Mm -hmm. I mean, Notovich effectively gave people exactly what they were looking for. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. And, I, you know, partly, I think, due to um, uh, colonialism of the time. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. Yeah. So it, the... Um, I think Jonathan uh, alluded to this earlier in the video show that there's kind of an exoticism that uh, you know just the the new interesting exotic ideas become what you know gets glommed onto an old boring story that you've yeah. heard a million times. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, I was thinking um, we were talking about wisdom coming from the east, and so, you know someone else I thought of is um, Apollonius of Tiana, mm. you know, the holy man and. Uh, Pythagorean philosopher, and I don't know if you know about this account, but Philostratus, who wrote in the late second, early third century, um, kind of did the same thing, you know, sort of romant romanticized this Apollonius, you know, in India and in the Far East. Uh, hmm. Well, not the Far East, but, you know, up to India. Yeah, uh, St. Thomas is also said to have gone That's to right. India afterwards as right. well. All that, uh, exactly. that seems a bit more likely in the... Uh, a bit <laughs> more likely. Well, <laughs> I 
I, yeah, I don't know that I would go that far, but again, <laughs> it's, it's a lovely story. <laughs> it is a lovely story. In fact, one of the uh, for for us Gnostics, one of the uh, one of the great stories of uh, the Gnostic scriptures, uh, the the hymn of the pearl. It's, it comes out of the mm -hmm. Acts of Thomas, which That's uh, right. describes. Text, yeah, yeah it's kind of. Um, I call it the Gnostic Don Quixote story, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I yeah, like yeah. So he tells he tells his fellow prisoners in uh, in India the story of of the hymn of the pearl. It's very it's very nice. I like mm -hmm. it. Yeah. The uh, I was actually going to put Apollonius into into the notes, but I didn't know if that was going too deep in because in in that life, um, the the section in India is actually quite long, and it does. Seem it almost it does seem to indicate they know at least a little bit about Indian culture. I think it does refer to Brahmins and a little bit of the geography of India. Where I'm not saying, of course, Apollonius went there, but uh, you know, the writer, the compilers, the redactors had some knowledge of of India and its beliefs, which, um, as Father Tony did point out earlier, um, you know, the maybe not specifically Palestine, but the 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 Middle East and and Egypt and and Greece did trade and interact with with these cultures that we think of as being quite distant. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, as I said, my, my bugaboo is is that we often kind of you know one of the reasons I wanted to do this show too is is I've been personally asked about the Jesus in India thing. But there's an old theory that I think was big in academia a hundred years ago, right? That Gnosticism was very influenced by Buddhism. And uh, uh, where now we, we try to locate it in, in, you know, the Levant and in the cultures that were there, which is still, as Father Tony said, a big mix of cultures, right? Mm -hmm. You have the Greeks and you have the Romans and you have the Egyptians and you have the Jews well, and, and they're reading you're... Plato and they're reading this and they're mixing it all together. And of course, you also have Manichaeism too, you know, mm -hmm. where you have, you know, kind of a kind of a combination of, you know, Jewish teachings and Christian teachings and Buddhist teachings. You know, I think many kind of try to absorb all of it pretty much. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's, some, that's a topic we don't spend enough time on on this show. It's, uh, mostly because I just don't know enough about it personally. But, um, you know, the, the history of Mani in, in China and, uh, you know, that's... There's there's a lot there. We could we should probably address that at some point. <laughs> we we really need to do a show on it. Um, uh, just just between just between you and me, uh, Brad, and everybody who's watching or listening to the show, my my present strategy for for booking the show is just to go uh, through the the Christian Apophrica, uh symposium that Brad presented uh, oh, his paper on Jesus of India in. And just you know, going through every scholar. Yes, I, I noticed you were doing that, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think we'll have an interesting Christmas time show uh, coming up. We're hoping to, yes. Yeah, but there is there is some scholars of Manichaeism uh, who, who presented there, so so hopefully we can get them on That's the right. show. That's right. Yeah, Tim Pettipe's presented there. That's right. Yes. Yeah, and I I have a personal. Th there is a theory. Okay, never way off track. But uh, I'd love to hear the theory. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the theory. So we've actually discovered uh, just just huge caches of Manichaean uh, documents that haven't been translated into English, or if they have, are, are hard to find. And there's there's evidence that the Manichaeans, you know, obviously used earlier Gnostic scriptures. Okay, mm -hmm. there, there's an idea that they had uh, that they had the um, uh, the Apophragma John, and that they had um, uh, Thomas and, and many, maybe others. So as we go through these documents, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually had. Uh, versions of second century documents. First, no, I should say first century, second century documents. So there's mm -hmm. more Gnostic scriptures out, specifically second century early Gnostic scriptures out there hiding. <laughs> We're going to get them. 
It's a it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, area of scholarly study that um, there aren't enough people I think working in this area. Uh, I think we mentioned on the show before that um, uh, April DeConnick has actually talked on this um, that there's a kind of a, a stigma out there for uh, scholars of Gnosticism that uh, biblical scholars say, oh, why don't you study some actual real stuff and and you know why is that important and and so there's still kind of a an academic um, blackballing that happens I think with some of the 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 scholars of Gnosticism and I, and I think that's too bad. Is. Yeah. And that's I think the longest you've gone in the show uh, before mentioning April DeConnick. So, Doctor <laughs> Doctor DeConnick is her unofficial uh, patron saint of the show. What you think? Thirteen minutes is the <laughs> the longest. Yeah, that is I've the gone. longest you might wow. have gone. <laughs> wow! All right. Somebody can go uh, back and check. Sorry, Brad. So, so back to Jesus in India. Yes. Uh, I have just a little you know check in, mate. So so we we've established that uh, that that Jesus probably didn't go to <coughs> India. That the Tovich's the book is, is a fake. But right. is there not an, an early, authentically ancient, apophrical scripture that mentions Jesus in India? So doesn't that prove he was there? <laughs> Are you thinking of the dialogue of the paralytic? Yes. Sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there is, uh, and it's not especially ancient, but there is the so-called dialogue of the paralytic with Christ. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's an obscure text that dates sometime before the 10th century. We don't really know when. Uh, but it presents a long conversation between Jesus and a paralytic, um, probably the one found in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Uh, you know, we've only got it in medieval Armenian and Georgian manuscripts, although there seems to have been an earlier copy in Arabic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, we don't really know when it was written. Uh, but what's interesting about this text is that there's a bit of a role reversal. Uh, you know, Jesus is portrayed as a skeptic and a disbeliever, while the paralytic is, you know, kind of the faithful one. Uh, so, you know, they have this conversation, and the paralytic, you know, is saying, I believe Christ will heal me, well, well Christ himself is pretending to be this disbeliever and kind of prodding him and poking him at every turn. Um, you know, it's a very entertaining dialogue with a lot of good witty repartee. Um, but, yeah, at a certain point in the dialogue, the paralytic asks Jesus, you know, who are you? And Jesus replies that he's a traveler who has just come from India. So then the paralytic asks if he knows of a certain Athanagenes and or Athanasius, the physician, and Jesus replies that he knows a far better practice of healing. And so, of course, you know, this text doesn't mean that Jesus actually went to India. Um, you know, any more in the Gospel of Jesus' wife fragment would mean that. Um, but it's an interesting text, you know, to be honest, I've never known, I don't quite know what to make of this episode. Yes, but it, it does, it does at least indicate, and obviously I was, I was being sarcastic earlier when I said this proves that, that Jesus was in India, but this idea and maybe this need and this yearning and some of these apophrical desires that you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. go back a thousand years, right? We want to, for some reason, we want to have, we want to locate Jesus in India. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny, you know, if you look at the Acts of Thomas, in, in a funny roundabout kind of way, Jesus does go to India. Because, you know, remember Thomas, of course, was, you know, is Jesus' twin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and there are certain scenes in the Acts of Thomas where, you know, basically I th there's one I think when, where there's a wedding and you know, I think it's the bride or the groom, I forget which, actually sees, you know, Thomas, but really sees Jesus. So, you know, in a funny sort of way, Jesus is in India in that text. It's, it's, almost, it's almost slapstick if I remember the text right. It's like mixed <laughs> yeah, up identity. Identical twin slapstick. <laughs> That's right. It's kind of, yeah, it's a case of mistaken identity. In fact, I, yeah, I, think, uh, I think the bride goes in to see the groom and um, yeah, basically expects to find her group, but it's you know, it's actually Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there? 
But uh, isn't there a a tomb of Jesus in India? I'm sorry. A, a tomb of Jesus in India. A theme of Jesus in India. A tomb. A, uh, a, sorry, a tomb. A theme. Uh, a burial yeah, plot. Yeah, I don't know so much of an ancient theme of Jesus in India, but it definitely I, this theme definitely emerges in the 18th and 19th centuries. Oh wait, and no, sorry, sorry, I was asking about a about a tomb, tomb. Oh, B-O-M-B. I'm sorry, a tomb. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, Ahmadiyya Muslims. Uh, Say that there's actually Jesus' tomb in, in uh, I think it's, uh, I forget where it is, in Srinagar, uh, in Kashmir. Um, yeah, you can still visit Jesus' tomb, according to them. This um, relates to the other legend. There are basically, you know, two streams of this, right? One places Jesus in India as a young, you know, as a youth, as a teenager, and the other one puts Jesus in India after his, after his crucifixion. Um, so in this reckoning, you know, Jesus survives the crucifixion, he goes there, and he dies of ripe old age. And so Ahmadiyya Muslims say that his tomb is still there today. Uh-huh. And uh, I I don't know much about Ahmadiyya uh, Muslims, but I, but I believe the sect did start in the in the eighteen hundreds. So they That's they right. are possibly drawing on you know the same stream, these same ideas, the same current that the Tovich is uh, is part of. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, Mirza Gula Ahmad himself. I, I believe he basically. Uh, you know, denied any knowledge of, of Matovich, but yeah, it, it's hard to hard not to imagine that something there was in the air that was going on. He, he published yeah. his book uh, in 1899. You know, just five years after Matovich published his book. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, I mean, definitely something was in the air. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the Gospel of Jesus' wife, the Jesus wife fragment, uh, a few minutes ago, because <clears throat> all throughout when I was reading your paper, I kept thinking about it. Uh, you know, and how these are. These are ideas that come up, and, and of course, in your paper, you also mention uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the Da Vinci Code, and all of these other kind of uh, modern Jesus myths that are in the air right now, and how these are kind of the modern-day Jesus in India story. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I think it's a real narrative that, yeah, it's a narrative that exists today, the idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Um, you know, could certainly see that, especially after the Da Vinci Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when you see this, you know, Gospel of Jesus' wife fragment emerge, uh, that's now, you know, pretty well, uh, you know, proven to be a forgery. Uh, it, it's hard not to imagine that it really is a product of this very same context in the same way that Matovich's Life of St. Issa was produced at the end of the 19th century, you know, when Indomania was, you know, everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the word forgery, I, I mean, I think certainly accurate in this case, but at the same time, uh, even the even the Gnostic scriptures were written some of them hundreds of years after the fact, and and so there, there's kind of but you're saying that there's a different impulse for the kind of ancient Christian apocrypha and Gnostic text than there is from the modern one. Can you kind of illustrate that difference? Mm, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. Um, you know, I, to be honest, I think the motives are really the same in quite a few different cases. Um, you know, obviously, I think with, with the ancient texts, you have to take out, you know, sens- sensationalism and quest for gain, which definitely exists today. Um, but, you know, for example, I, in, with, in the case of the life of St. Issa, I brought up, you know, the tendency to want to take the responsibility off of the Jews for Jesus' crucifixion. And you find in a lot of other early Christian apocrypha, particularly the ones relating to Pilate, the opposite tendency, where they tend mm-hmm. to increase the blame on the Jews. So, you know, in that sense, I think certain motives are similar. Yeah, that's an interesting time period of the, the the texts that are being written through as the Christian tradition kind of moves out mm-hmm. of the synagogues and then into the, you know, the, into the the uh, Gentiles uh, communities that um, the the propaganda shifts 
whereas yeah. the the very early texts are all in, you know very mired in Judaism and and uh, the temple traditions and all that stuff and and as these missionaries these Christian missionaries are going out to the Gentiles they're developing stories that are uh, more appealing to mm -hmm. you know Greek and Roman audiences and, and therefore um, making Pilate more and more the good guy. <laughs> That's right, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, I believe it's in the Coptic tradition. I think also the Ethiopic, he becomes a saint, in fact. Mm. Yeah, there are all sorts of tales told about Pilate and uh, you know, the good things he's said to have done. I mean, there are also texts that you know, do the opposite, but by and large, he's given a pretty favorable portrait <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> throughout the early centuries. You know. Yeah, so, so the, the idea that these forgeries are being created uh, to advance some kind of social agenda um, you know, I think you can really say that, you know, from from day one, that th these are the stories that are being uh, told and shifted and and adjusted over time to to fit a certain agenda. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. You know, and what I try to do in my own research is show how you know a lot of the motivations with some of the modern apocrypha, certainly not all, but a lot of the motivations and I think reasons for writing them are really quite similar. Uh, you know, also, you know, the thing we haven't mentioned yet is that sort of drive toward the apocryphal, kind of, you know, what we call apocryphicity. Um, you know, you certainly see that already in the, in the New Testament Gospels themselves. You know, so for example, you know, early Christians are already wondering, well, what, you know, what was Jesus like when he was born? Mm -hmm. You know, historically, we really don't know anything. But they were already then, even then, starting to fill in the gaps, you know, as you see in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that very same tendency has continued to the present. I, I would say there's kind of a, an uninter uninterrupted stream of apocryphicity that has continued from then until now. Uh, you know, to take a modern example, too, you have Anne Rice's Christ the Lord. And she's no relation, by the way. <laughs> uh, but uh, she does the same thing. You know, gives, uh, I, and I haven't read the book yet, but she basically uh, kind of gives the perspective of the young Jesus uh, as he's in Egypt, as far as I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laundricette has a, a book that I haven't read yet, but um, it, it deals with uh, um, deals with Jesus in a different in a different way, um, in a less a less divine way, in a more human way. I think, mm -hmm. if I recall. Um, and then, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the life of Brian. Also, I think it's very yeah. it's an interesting, one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> an interesting modern example of how uh, how you can take the story and tell it in a different way, and, and will be relevant to a modern audience. <laughs> you know, thinking of, you know, humanizing Jesus, I also think of, uh, you know, Kazantzakis in The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm -hmm. yeah, yes. It's a pretty good example where they sort of show him as, and they, they talk about that at the beginning of the film, so far as I remember. Um, but yeah, kind of making him much more human, you know, a Jesus that people can relate to. And I, I actually think the marriage motif, you know, imagining a married Jesus, I think a lot of people find somehow, uh, is somehow more relevant to their own lives. Um, it somehow makes him less foreign. I, I think that part of the yeah, um, I, I, I think you roboted out there for a second, but uh, I think we got the gist. Yeah, the the idea that um, that Jesus was unmarried, of course, being a very uh, central tenant of the Roman Catholics' uh, insistence on on a, a a male clergy, a celibate male clergy, that you know Jesus was uh, was unmarried and celibate, and therefore the clergy should be uh, married, mm -hmm. male and unmarried and celibate as well. I think that's exactly it. Yeah, I think uh, I, th I think that's right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of you know conspiracy theories these days. You know, there are ideas that the Catholic Church is hiding something. I think that's also something that you know, thinking of the cultural climate about Jesus and Mary Magdalene, I think that, that sort of goes along with it. You know, especially thinking of the Da Vinci Code, they, they sort of cohere together. Mm -hmm. you, know, what, you know, what is the Vatican hiding? This is something in the popular imagination. 
I mean, I don't think the Vatican is hiding anything. <laughs> but uh, it's something kind of in the popular consciousness. Nothing so, um, <laughs> certainly nothing so large and, <laughs> and uh, like that. There's, there's a lot of things that the Roman Catholic Church is hiding, but they're small and modern problems. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, well, let's not get into that. Uh, <laughs> well, now I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of recent scandals and, and whatnot. But, uh, oh, okay, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. But, uh, Here it, my mind is purely on text. <laughs> no, right, absolutely, <laughs> as a good scholar should. Um, there's, a, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of uh, well, you mentioned the last temptation of Christ, and, and I mentioned the life of Brian, and these are these are meant as fictional accounts. These are meant to be, uh, well, not meant to be taken as scripture. And and I often wonder, you know, what of these uh, so-called forgeries, if they're not really meant to be taken as, you know, this is a story about Jesus or, or that ha you know is actually factually true, or if this is you know fan fiction. There's one of the things that. Uh, the Gnostics get accused of in, in the early uh, in the in the heresiologists of, of creating enormous fictions, and <laughs> and maybe that's true. You know, maybe that's not that's that was the intent all along for some of them anyway, and certainly not for all of them. That you know we're we're using this particular story that everybody knows in order to fill in some gaps in a theology that doesn't cover all of the you know everything that they they felt that they needed to know. Yeah, it's funny too with fiction, right? Because I mean, with fiction, even though they're not, you know, you couldn't, you know, we're not talking forgeries. It still affects your reading of texts. So even though there's no, you know, intent to deceive anyone, you know, people are saying, "Hey, this is fiction." It's funny how it still affects how you go back and read the texts. Mm -hmm. I think it often has a very similar effect. Definitely, and to uh, 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 Dan Brown does state that, of course, Da Vinci Code is a fictional thriller, but all the conspiracy theories in That's it right. are true. So, yeah. so he has right. said that you know he does believe that Jesus is married to Mary Magdalene and everything else in the book. All those, all that stuff is real history. Yeah. So, um, and he may may even indicate that in the Da Vinci Code. It's been a long time since I've read that. Yeah, well, the um, preface actually goes into great detail about. Um, you know what what he believes is the the true parts and and what he believes i think he makes great pains to say that these are this is what people some people believe to be absolutely true and and not necessarily that he says this is what happened and this is true but uh, only that some people have said in very much the way that the you know the jesus wife fragment does the same thing and um uh, dr king uh when she presented this this piece of uh, you know this fragment of papyrus so many you know years ago now at this point she never said this is actually true about Jesus That's all that you can say about it is this is what some person at some point in history thought about Jesus yeah. and it's That's but you're right though it, when people do read it even if it even if it is completely fiction people do read it and then go back and take that to the source texts and and uh, and read back into them yeah, and to, to build on what, on what Brad said uh, about this impulse to humanize Jesus, uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman and others have pointed out that in the West, particularly in America, you know, the the, the Jesus of many churches and the Jesus of Sunday school is the Jesus of the fourth gospel in many ways. Uh, maybe even a more extreme version of of the Joannine uh, Jesus. 
uh, you know, one that is that is very ascetic, that is that is all God in a human form. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Mark and Jesus and the Luke and Jesus are are often kind of uh, forgotten, uh, or, or the emphasis isn't there. You know, if you if you ask okay. a lot of uh, if you excuse the crudity, but if you if you ask, I think a lot of Sunday school uh, goers does did, did Jesus poop? They would say, Oh no. <laughs> you know, no, Jesus, Jesus never had a poop. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, so I, yeah, so, so I think that, that, that there is this very strong uh, need to, uh, to to humanize Jesus, and we sometimes we do that through fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, uh, just kind of going back, uh, uh, Brad. Uh, my memory is 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 not that that great on it but i, I did too read elizabeth claire prophet's uh jesus the lost years okay. uh, many 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 years ago i i had a summer job i don't think i've ever mentioned this on the show as a teen working for a new age organization they had a small mm-hmm. library and they had all the elizabeth claire prophet books mm-hmm. um yeah but I, I believe she wrote that in the 80s and uh and again it just uh and, and she actually you know led a i don't know if you, if you call it a church but she was she was a spiritual leader that had quite a large organization mm-hmm. a very large rich and powerful organization and i believe that was an official teaching of her of her organization that right. jesus had, had gone to india yeah i think um, that, that's the right like you i haven't read it in more than 20 years so i don't recall all the details <laughs> but yeah yeah she also has a book called the gnostic gospels i believe or the, the gnostics and if, if you do google well, gnosticism she'll she'll often still come up in the searches but uh i don't you know i don't want to knock any anybody else's religious beliefs but if you're you're looking for a good scholarship on gnosticism i i don't know if i'd recommend that one from what i remember <laughs> well, there's, a, there's a lot to choose from in that department uh, yeah. <laughs> um you know i wanted to bring up mythicism here uh because i think that there's an interesting kind of uh segue if you tracked backwards through the apocrypha and the forgeries you know like uh, at what point do you stop right i think that you know we've had miguel connor on the show and uh, other people who who embrace kind of a mythicist view of jesus that um I think would be uh, <coughs> would be pretty pretty comfortable with the idea that these um, forgeries were being taken seriously because at the end of the day they believed that all of the original gospels were forgeries as well. <laughs> so I think there's an interesting um, you know I think an interesting nod here towards the mythicists. <laughs> Well, and you know, there's a real discussion now going on with you know what is it that constitutes a forgery? What types of forgeries are there? I'm thinking especially of you know Bart Ehrman's books that have come out pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the one forged and forgery and counterforgery. And yeah, we talked about that quite a bit at the symposium, and uh, you know, it's kind of hard to give an overview of uh, you know Bart's paper. It was, it was very good. Um, you know, a lot of people disagree. I think I disagree with him on a few points, but uh, it, it's a bit of a discussion going on now. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it does seem harsh when you use the term forgery, mm-hmm. and and of course Bart Ehrman does does do it deliberately because he, right. he kind of wants it to be harsh. Yeah, and uh, I I was actually taught I, I only have my undergrad, uh, but I took religious studies. I, I have undergrad major in religious studies, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, I was taught in school that that early Christians who wrote apothrypha or wrote even books that are in the Bible, you know, something like. You know the letters of Peter, the letters of John that are in the Bible, um, were uh, which we now know were not written by Peter, right? Were not written by John. Uh, 
the, the Christians that wrote those were forgers because they were such dedicated disciples of this particular uh, uh, person and they were such dedicated Christians that they were continuing on a tradition and assigning a name to it and were so in that tradition that they were uh, 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 being authentic to themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ehrman completely tears that idea apart. He, you know, he says there's no, there's no history of Christians ever thinking that way, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. of them ever writing down that, oh, yes, it's okay if you're a dedicated disciple, and that early peoples who wrote in, uh, under fake names uh, uh, were considered forgers by their peers and knew they were committing forgery. It's so a I, deliberate uh, appeal to authority in that. Yes. Know. Um, so, so I, I do find that very, very uh, interesting, and I find it interesting. That's what I taught, and what, and what was was taught, and that's what a lot of people were taught, I believe, in school. Mm-hmm. No, it's uh, the same that, thing I learned in school as well. Absolutely, yeah, yes. yeah. Um, and uh, but I, but you know, it is uh, not to say that that sometimes uh, or most of the time, uh, many times that that they don't that uh, the writers of these texts don't have good impulses, as we talked about. The Tovich uh, had at least two good impulses, right? I think so, uh, yeah. Fighting anti-Semitism and making connections between the world's religions, um, and and I don't know, Brad, uh, the, if if this is sort of outside the speculation of scholarship, but do you think Natovich might have thought that Jesus had gone to India, and you know, in his mind, you know, you know, he saw the the, the connections uh, that he he saw connections between Buddhism and Christianity, as you're saying, these texts are being translated. He's traveling in India, so so maybe he's like, oh, you know, Jesus must have been to India, but we can't find the proof, so I'll I'll just create the proof. But he must have been here. Do you think that's a possibility that he was? He may have actually believed it and was trying to just get the story out there. I think it's definitely a possibility. I mean, I, I haven't yeah. encountered anything in Natovich's writings that you know, would lead me to believe he did, in fact, think Jesus went to India. But I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a possibility. Uh, yeah. It would seem odd if he put Jesus in India otherwise if he didn't think there was something to the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's difficult to judge a person's motives. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, That's it's hard Natovich especially because, I mean, our, the sources for his life, they're a bit tricky, and a lot of them kind of go back to Natovich himself. In, in essence, we have a few uh, dictionary articles, you know, one um, in a Parisian dictionary, I think it was written in 1905, that it's a brief bio of Natovich, but, they, you know, it supposedly goes back to Natovich himself. And so, so much of what we have is really Natovich's own self-presentation. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to know sometimes exactly what he was up to. Yeah. And uh, I think his book is still in print, which just goes to yeah. show you what a what a what a powerful work it is, and what a powerful hold it has on imagination. Right. Um, I think when we touched on it briefly, we had Dr. Dylan Burns on the show, but in his research, uh, again, we've talked about a few times this idea of wisdom from the East is a very ancient one. But in in his work, he talks about you know the Gnostics sometimes use that idea, right? And they have a text uh, found in Nag Hammadi called Zoroastros. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they're making a connection to to Zoroaster, and there it's it's actually a way for them to say to some of the uh, to some of the Pla- Platonists and some of their contemporaries, we actually have knowledge from the East that's older than Plato. It goes mm-hmm. goes back older than what you guys have. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ancient so, automatically equals better. Yeah, yes, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and that's always true. That's true today. And. Um, uh, 
that's why I, I find it interesting that, that um, w when we talk about modern forgeries, and that seems to be the, the litmus test is, it, you know, w was it written a long time ago? No? Okay, then there must be nothing of value in it at all. And that's, pr you know, that's not true. There's lots of new things that have lots of value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guarantee, uh, uh, Brad, that as the dialogue of the paralytic of Christ uh, gets better known, you will start seeing it in conspiracy theories, and I, I don't necessarily <laughs> I, I, like the term. I'm sort of half expecting yeah. that, and I'm sort of trying to yeah. brace myself for it. <laughs> yes, you'll be getting some emails from some people. Yeah. Who, I'm, I'm expecting some, that. Who has some because, interesting theories. You know, it's such a peculiar portrait of Jesus. Uh, you know, it's one that you know, kind of rivals the infancy gospel of Thomas in the sort of portrait it gives. And uh, I'm interested to see how people react to it and kind of what they make of it. I mean, I'm still not exactly sure what to make of it myself. But it's such a fascinating text. Mm. Only thing to do is steer into it. You've got to write that book first before anybody else. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all, the co all the conspiracy theories you can think of. Put them down on paper and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make <Exactly>. a fortune. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Just, just write a, a bad thriller with a symbologist, and then at yeah. the end suggest that maybe <laughs> some of the stuff is, is true. Where can yeah. I study symbology, by the way? I'd like to be a symbologist. Yeah. Make sure you get that guy, that orange Oompa Loompa dude, to say something about aliens about it. Yeah. And uh, on the History Channel. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, are we winding down here? Jonathan, do you have any other questions? Any other points? I... I think we're winding down. Uh, it, it's been a fascinating discussion, but uh, I, I think we did get through. Uh, the, I'm looking at our, our list of questions. Sorry, mm -hmm. sorry, listeners. We, we actually do write down the questions. It's not all spontaneous. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, I think I think we are. Do you think that they want that? Do you, do you think they want to think that we're <laughs> fantastic off the top of our heads? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we put work into this, gosh darn it. You should donate to our Patreon. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, speaking of Patreon, wow, what yeah. a segue. Um, yeah, you can visit patreon.com slash Gnostic, and you can support the work of the Gnostic Wisdom Network here and uh, all the, the stuff we do. Uh, I you know, give you a couple of teasers. We've got some very interesting uh, shows coming up and some new series that, uh, that are going to be airing on the network in the next couple of months. And, uh, and your support really helps us to, to grow the network and to do more things, and we really appreciate everybody who has donated already and if you haven't yet please do visit it and um, you know check it out in the uh, description of the podcast and uh, it's it's all over the website and all that so uh, please do that um, and once again uh, Brad thank you for being on the show we really appreciate yeah, your you insights yeah and uh, you know definitely go and check out his work on academia.edu uh, there's some some really fantastic stuff uh, there's some scholarship that he's working on so we love our scholars here on this show. <laughs> you, you keep us in fresh documents and PDFs. Uh, all right. So then for everybody who is listening along at home, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. 
This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c. 